From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 47, we bring you The Man Who Ate His Hat by Scott Murray, first published in issue 2 in September 2011. From Kenneth Walsenholm's almost uncanny knack for misidentifying players, to Peter Drury's Homeric quest for the world's crassest prepared soundbite. Via Coleman Balls, Keegan's Calls, and the one-time visionary Jimmy Hill's Lear-esque descent into myopic whirling bow-time madness, football fans have had to put up with an awful lot of tools talking tut on TV over the years. It might be refreshing to know that this grand tradition has been with us pretty much from the off, if only because it means our forefathers will have suffered just like the rest of us. This is the short, simple but glorious story of the first ever football commentary cock-up. The man who made history was the BBC commentator Lieutenant Commander Thomas Woodruff in only the second ever live televised football match, and his mistake set the bar high from the get-go. Our hero left a mark that has arguably yet to be bettered, despite the gaggle of clowns who have traipsed pitifully in his wake. Tommy Woodruff's rank came from his time in the Royal Navy. While serving, he had edited the magazine for naval personnel, Ditty Box, a charming title, or a downright filthy one, take your pick, sailors, as well as embarking on a career as an author of books and short plays about naval history. His journalistic and creative exploits caught the attention of the BBC, who, in the early 1930s, gave him the job of commentating on naval displays for their radio service, embellishing the sound pictures of ships honking as they set sail with his knowledgeable chat. With radio fast becoming a mass medium in British society, Woodruff emerged as a well-known and greatly loved figure, his style friendly and informal, at least by the standards of the paternalistic 1930s BBC. By way of illustration, on Sundays they would only transmit church services and sermons, with the infrequent wild addition of a Beethoven string quartet. Woodruff soon became the Beeb's go-to guy for major state occasions and sporting events. The Dimbleby as well as the Barry Davies of his day, Woodruff was one of the commentators at the 1937 coronation of George VI, described Neville Chamberlain's return from Munich in 1938, and was the BBC's representative at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, which earned him a commemoration medal from the Nazi government, plus an illuminated document that stated that Hitler had conferred the gong for his services to the Games. In the realm of sport, he was quite the polymath, turning his hand to anything from FA Cup finals, the boat race and the Grand National, to a bridge competition between England and Austria, and, flick through preposterous things listed in the Radio Times, quote, village green cricket from the Barley Barn Meadow at Little Dunmow. This reads like some sort of arch satire on the upper middle class social moors of the 30s, but the BBC actually did once cover village green cricket and card games on the radio. It would be nice to think that they'll retain enough sporting rights never to have to plumb these debts again in the future, but you wouldn't put too much of your own money on it. But Woodruff could broaden it out to the masses too. He was the chatty host of Spelling Bee, the popular radio parlour game. He would later become the UK's first ever TV game show host, when this R-A-C-Y concept was transferred to television in 1938. He also appeared in magazine-style documentaries. There was, for instance, an entire programme devoted to the live closing of a 400-year-old pub, 
the Turk's head in Wapping, since reopened. On another occasion, he introduced the ancient art of jiu-jitsu to the British public. Along with fellow reporters Lionel Seckham and John Snag, Woodruff visited Budakwai, a London jiu-jitsu club, to talk to the chief instructor Koisumi, who immediately served notice that he could quite easily take on all three BBC men at once. Woodruff, doing his duty to the listener, snatched the mic to describe how Seckham and Snag fared against the instructor as they attempted to take his pocketbook from him against his will. Koisumi predicted that, quote, Seckham's face would be on the ground in a few seconds, and that Snag would be, quote, helpless almost instantaneously. How they fared is not recorded, but it is safe to say that the wily Woodruff did not need to break sweat. Sadly, Woodruff's easy-going approach to life would land him in big trouble on the 20th of May 1937. Eight days after the coronation of George VI, when he described the new king's, quote, glorious scintillating coruscating coach, travelling up Constitution Hill as being, quote, all lit up with little lamps, he was dispatched to Spithead to describe a naval review of the king's fleet. It was a major event, inexorably linked to the coronation, a demonstration of the new king's imperial might. His broadcast would begin at 10.45pm. Woodruff spent the whole day necking expensive wines and fine port with old navy buddies. Woodruff's commentary position had been described as being aloft in the foretop, a phrase that could easily be borrowed to illustrate his state of mind when he finally began broadcasting. Slurring like an eejit, he grasped for the first lyrical phrase that came into his head, the little lamps of the king's coronation coach, his last broadcast eight days earlier. Quote, the fleet's lit up, he stammered, and when I say lit up, I mean with fairy lamps. The sentence became the recurring motif of a spectacular four-minute ramble, the cyclical nature of which was only broken by one extended period of silence, after which he apologised as he, quote, had to tell some people to shut up talking, and a whelp of genuine confusion when the HMS Nelson turned 45 degrees, thus rendering the lights temporarily out of view. It's gone, he sobbed existentially. There's nothing between us now and heaven. The BBC had happily broadcast four minutes of skittered nonsense, but the mere mention of heaven prompted the BBC control room to fade him out. Listeners suddenly found themselves listening to the Carlton Hotel dance band instead. The following day, with hacks and press photographers camped outside his King's Road flat giving it the big one, Woodruff stayed in for the duration with a wet towel on his head. Lieutenant Commander Woodruff is not making any statement and that's final, a friend finally told the mass throng, who had been taking it in turns to bother the poor commentator's mile-wide head by ringing his phone. Years later, Woodruff would admit to a troubled journey that day into the dark of his soul. I was so overcome I burst into tears, he said. A couple of days later, he was hauled before the BBC Big Cheeses, who were distinctly unimpressed that their man had been so obviously bluted live on air, but were even more testy that a drunken commentator had embarked on a decadent riff about fairyland when it was pretty obvious the country was on the road to war. Woodruff would undoubtedly have been sacked had it not been for his immense popularity. Instead he was suspended and back behind the mic soon enough. By this point, with the phrase lit up already common parlance for being paggered on pop, the BBC had launched the new medium of television. Their first adventure into live football came on the 16th of September 1937, when the London service from Alexandra Palace, 
transmitting to nearly 100 viewers in the Muswell Hill area, ran the following packed schedule. 3pm, Fancy That. 3.30pm, British Movie Tone News. 3.40pm, Football at the Arsenal. 3.55pm, Cartoon. 4pm, Close. Obviously, what everyone really wants to know is exactly what the hell sort of a programme Fancy That was. But we'll concentrate on the football, a 15-minute live display of training at Arsenal. Hmm. But within months, the BBC had the wherewithal to transmit live games. Their first spectacular was the England-Scotland match from Wembley on the 9th of April 1938. Woodruff was co-commentator with Arsenal manager George Allison, and the whole thing went so swimmingly that the pair were both sent to the Empire Stadium again at the end of the month to embellish the action of the BBC's second live match, the 1938 FA Cup final between Preston North End and Huddersfield Town. It would not go well for Woodruff. The match was an appalling spectacle, a dour defensive struggle, goalless through 90 minutes, plus the first 29 of extra time. With the game less than 60 seconds away from becoming the first ever goalless draw at Wembley, Woodruff chanced his arm with a trademark flourish. If there's a goal now, he said, I'll eat my hat. At which point the Preston inside right, George Much, broke into the Huddersfield area and was upended by town's captain Alf Young. Much got up and slammed the spot kick onto the underside of the bar and into the net. Huddersfield just about had time to restart before the referee blew for full time. As unfortunate predictions go, this one took some topping. But in fairness to Woodruff, he was as good as his word. Turning up on BBC Television's popular magazine programme Picture Page the following Friday, Woodruff tucked into a large boater-shaped cake. A lesser man than Mr Woodruff would have blanched, reported the Times, for he could boast no natural aptitude for such a feat as eating his hat. He has not a pie-eating championship to his name, and at school in the race for the tuck shop, it was invariably a case of Woodruff also ran. Nevertheless, last night he ate his hat, a boater which some kindly soul, thinking to soften the blow, had decorated with his old-school colours, and the hat was eaten before the television cameras. It was an impressive performance, the start perhaps a little weak, for the attack upon the outer rim lacked fire, but once into his stride he resembled nothing so much as a winning boat race crew, the in-and-out movement of the mouth carrying him with spending power and rhythm through the brim. For a few minutes the cameras left him to dwell upon another item in the programme, and when they returned the hat had nearly gone. Mr Woodruff, though visibly tiring, kept to his task. Thus was honour avenged and faith kept. With the last crumb finished, the picture faded out, leaving him in peace to go home to supper. Hey, here's an idea. Do you think we could get Peter Drury to eat a big plate of something equally symbolic of his commentaries? That was The Man Who Ate His Hat by Scott Murray, first published in Issue 2 in September 2011. Also in Issue 2, James Horncastle on how Gianni Brera shaped the language and style of Italian football. Rory Smith asks, is football still sport? Gabriele Marcotti takes us on a sentimental journey through the 1990 World Cup as experienced by a teenage Italian. And our greatest games feature looks back at Saint-Étienne 3, Dinamo Kiev 0, in the European Cup quarter-final second leg in Saint-Étienne in March 1976. Issue 2, like all issues of The Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk. 
That means that digital downloads can be yours for as little as a penny apiece, while our print edition starts at just £6 plus postage and packing. Subscription options are available in both digital and print formats, and you can also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores. If you have any comments, feedback or suggestions about the podcast, you can email us, podcast at theblizzard.co.uk, or find us on Twitter at blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D.